0: So we've just listened to a short excerpt from the sound installation called Paradise. But it's not just a sound installation, isn't it, Douglas? Um,
1: yes, yeah, so welcome everybody. Good to be with you again, I stay. Yes, yeah, so so Paradise is a it's an installation uh, of loudspeakers and a playback system, but it's also a musical instrument uh what my collaborator Lauren Covington and I refer to as a gestural instrument so it's an instrument that people play but it's not something that you hold you play it by moving through a space and so we've we've created paradise and I'll talk a little bit about the, where the name comes from but we've we've installed it in a number of different places in the US but also at the Venice International Performance Art Week Uh, as as part of um, a group exhibition there a number of years ago, and then here in the U.S. at different art parks and museums. So, with, with paradise, the word itself comes from, we think of paradise as this idea like the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve. Paradise, in terms of the root of the word, comes from the Persian concept of an enclosure for animals, so, there's this idea of paradise connected to the natural world. So, we think of it as an ideal utopian place, but it was actually a very specific description of an enclosure for animals. And I thought that was an interesting metaphor as we reflect on our relationship to the natural world and a long-standing, in the Western tradition, that we sort of stewards of the national, natural world which, you know, in biblical terms is, is problematic. Uh, you know, our stewardship, I think, is under serious question as we look at climate change and the Anthropocene era of human impact on the world around us. So, but that was the idea behind it, is to, to look at the etymology, the origins of the word paradise. And it's a sort of virtual enclosure, if you will, set within a museum, an art park, or a gallery setting. So what it actually is, is a flexible instrument. And we usually use 24 loudspeakers, maybe 25 with a subwoofer. And what a subwoofer is, is a, a speaker that handles low frequency sounds. So you get the nice big booming sound of an iceberg calving or something. And the speakers are arranged throughout a given space, from the ceiling to the walls to the floor, we really try and have a three-dimensional immersive environment. Then we use what are called connect cameras, and for some people out there who have played um, games, gestural games with Wii or something like that, the connect cameras are motion trackers. And we'll use anywhere between two and three motion trackers. And this is where Lauren Covington is just brilliant. He's been making interactive art for decades. So he did a lot of the programming of the Connect cameras, which can triangulate, meaning take the bearings of where you're standing in a gallery or an art park. And we can track that information. So to, to amazing degree of precision. If you move your arm in a certain way, if your body moves in a certain way, you not only trigger sounds making them happen, but you can move those sounds between loudspeakers so that you begin to shape the sonic environment around you through your motion. And it's not just one person. It can be groups of people. Part of what we're interested in exploring is the interactivity, not just you as a person going to a museum or a gallery, but going with your friends or going with complete strangers. How you come together and experience something collectively is really at the heart of it. And for us, interactive art begins when you walk in the room. And one thing Lauren says, I was always fond of saying, it's not like other art forms. I mean, as a painter, you paint a picture, you hang it on the wall, you step back and you're done. For us, the process begins when you walk into the room, and we're always learning. We're always adjusting the code in the program when we see how people actually respond. We have an idea of how they might respond being attracted to a particular sound and part of the room or space. But people surprise you. And so half the fun for us is watching people make these discoveries, saying, oh, wow. I have agency in this. I am triggering that sound, but I'm also moving it around. So another example of how we would work with what we call kind of schooling or flocking behavior based on birds or based on fish is how, you know, if you think about a murmuration of birds, that is a group of birds on an afternoon, say in Vilnius, and these rooks come and there there are hundreds and hundreds of them. They move as an organic whole, like a school of fish. So... Lauren thought this through on a prog- programming level, and we came up with the idea just as one example that, say, you and two friends come into the exib- exhibit space. You don't really see anything. I mean, they're just speakers hanging around. But as you start to move, you trigger a sound. And then someone else triggers another sound in another part of the gallery. So you come in as a, as a trio But then you start exploring on your own. So what we would do is that as you moved away from each other, the sounds would begin to change in their relationship to each other. But we also introduced something that people would would hear very tangibly. So we introduced what's called reverberation. So if you pulled apart as a group and went exploring on your own, the sounds would begin to sound like they were in a cathedral or a very large space. When you come back together, that closes down and they become much more intimate. So gradually people realize, oh, I'm actually not only making the sounds happen, I'm not only moving them around, pushing them away or pulling them towards me, but I'm doing this with other people. And as we work together and discover this shared experience, the instrument comes to life, if that makes sense.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting. The joy of it, this is just seeing how that happens. But uh, have you recorded those different reiterations of audience participation? Yes.
1: Yeah, so, what we listened to coming into the, the program today was just an example of something we grabbed from people exploring the space. So we'll pick up a little bit with that. And what you're hearing is sort of a mixed metaphor. And what's been fun about doing Paradise in different places is that we have in a computer a bank of thousands of sounds, literally thousands of sounds. And they're categorized in different ways. There'll be things that are very specific voices, either human... I worked with a chorus at Syracuse University, making studio recordings of them, doing all different kinds of chords and note patterns. But then we also used whales and seals and birds, as well as the sounds of ice melting, cracking, and booming. So we have all of this stew, if you will, of material that can either be brought together or can be isolated in terms of a palette that is very specific. So we had one iteration of this that was just polar sounds of wind and ice, and another one was just all nothing but underwater sounds. So there's tremendous flexibility in how we organize the palette of sounds depending on the venue and what we're doing. So in this case, we have a kind of jumble and mixed metaphor of things that don't belong together in the natural world, but in a virtual paradise come together as you create the sound palette. And so nothing ever happens the same way twice. And we can program this where certain sounds will only happen maybe once an hour, once a day. Others will happen a little bit more frequently. And that's part of the, the palette and what we do artistically, but it's also what people bring to it. If we have a lot of people or if we have a few people, it's going to sound very, very different because we can measure the density of how many people are in the space at the t- at one time because what we don't want to have, have happen is it just to turn into complete cacophony because everybody's triggering something, triggering something. So we have as much as it's additive, it can also be subtractive. So, once we hit a certain density of sounds, we begin to shut the system down. And so, we have control over that. And that's part of the fun is thinking, okay, well, God, we've got a a group of school children coming in. They're all 10 years old. And the first thing I want to do is run in circles to see how loud they can make it and if they can break it. So, which is exciting to see, but you can imagine a group of 10-year-olds running around the place once they understand how this works to see if they can create as much noise as possible. So we're kind of aware of that. We're also aware that there are other aspects that inform what you're hearing and when we listen to this. Sometimes we've had the gallery lit, and people behave differently when there's a lot of light Other times we'll have the light very, very low, maybe with a gobo, which is simply something that you put in a theater light to give a a pattern. So we'd have like leaf patterns or something, very, very low blue-green light. People didn't talk as loudly, they whispered in the dark, and they moved much more slowly. So the, the amount of light saturation also affected the performance parameters of what people were hearing. So with that in mind, we'll just listen to another short snippet. And so imagine people walking around, moving sounds, triggering sounds, and having this journey of discovery that's both personal and individual, but it's also collective. And that's the exciting part. And uh, where was this recorded? This one was recorded, I believe, in Venice. Yeah, in the Palazzo Moro in Venice, as part of the uh, International Performance Art Week. And we just took a feed from the computer and um, captured that, and we could we could play it back because we have very detailed logs of where sounds were, what sounds played, and that's part of what Lorne and I do at the end of the day is we watch people but we also look at the logs and go oh this is interesting people seem to move to that side of the room so we have a record of where people are going how many people in the sort of shape or envelope of time of day and what the experience was like that we can analyze and go boy that's interesting it's a little dense on that let's change the palette a little bit next time and he can do it remotely with an internet connection so he can reprogram and make adjustments but because it's interactive, as I said earlier, we're always changing it. It's never exactly the same, and it's never static. You know, once we learn something about human behavior in response to it, it's like, wouldn't it be fun to do this? What about doing this? So we'll change the sound palette. Lauren will work on the programming level, and we'll and I'll talk about the audio processing opportunities that we have. So it's a really lovely collaboration of playing off each other but being responsive in that interactive dimension and immersive dimension uh, of the experience we want people to have. Because the public's the ones making the art. We just set up the framework and the playground and invite them in.
0: So that's that's a, that's a question that I have. Uh, you kind of put it under the label of performance art. So when we say performance art, we kind of imply that the performer's that is, you and Lauren have to be in the space, you know. So, do you always have to be in the space when the piece is on? No,
1: no. That's that's the beauty of it. Usually, it takes us about three days to set it up and calibrate the system. And it's always very specific to where we are. So, that the measurements that we take around the physical space. You know, we usually ask people to share blueprints or architectural drawings of the space, and Lorne works a lot with virtual reality. And once we have those dimensions, we construct a virtual, Lorne constructs a virtual simulated environment. And we place the speakers there, and using VR headset and, um, you know, viewer, we can explore the space and we can get a feeling for what it's going to be like in the design phase of that. And that's our first step. And so it's VR not as an end, but as a working design method. And it's just been an invaluable tool. And certainly when we get to the real space from the virtual space. There are always surprises, there are always things there, but we have a pretty clear idea of where, what's gonna go where in terms of the speaker distribution so that we can have a truly immersive environment. Then when we set it up, usually with an internet connection, not always. I mean, there've been some outdoor venues where we have to physically be there to turn it on, turn it off. But if there's an internet connection, Lauren can simply log in Look at what's going on, diagnose anything, any problems, but he's also designed the system so that if there's a power outage, it powers back on, so we can simply leave it and just check in virtually occasionally to see how things are going. But part of the joy for us, as I mentioned earlier, is the ability to, to watch people and how they respond, because we learn so much about our own artistic intentions and process and. For it to tr- truly be interactive, we need to be responsive to what we're seeing. It's never finished in a way. So we would like being there of just, just watching and having people have these moments of discovery. And, and what's interesting about that is that some people kind of come in, they look around, they see a bunch of speakers, and then they go right back out. And so we, we realize, okay, we need to, to have a little cue sheet. It's like, here's how this actually works. Because we wanted to, we didn't want to play too much on information-heavy front-loading, as it were, because it sort of sucks the magic and the life out of it. But we realize we don't want to leave people clueless either. So there's always this delicate balance between having people discover the magic of their own creativity in the, in the moment with, you need a little bit of instruction on how this thing works. So. <laughs> Um, So we sort of learned from that. And then, you know, thinning the palette of sounds out so it wasn't too dense, so people could understand their own agency as a performer in the space. So our level of involvement, sometimes we have to be there, but a lot of times we don't. It can just run. But we love being there, and it's nice to interact. Sometimes, you know, we don't tell people that we're involved, they just think we're other people there. And, you know, other times it's just a few people and someone has a question, then, you know, we'll introduce ourselves and describe how everything works. Or kind of like the Wizard of Oz, we show them what's behind the curtain and how the system actually works because we have a very nice graphical interface where we can see people moving around. We can see how things are being triggered and the dynamic that exists between people. But it's endlessly fascinating to me to see how people respond. There's some people who jump right in. It's interesting The people who jump right in are either children or old people. Middle-aged people, not so much. They'll kind of hang back at the periphery and they'll watch other people. So there's always. So we learned early on to put some chairs around so that for those who just want to spectate and see what people are doing, they'll they'll have an opportunity to do that. And then they may get in, they may not. Um, And as I said earlier, some people that come in, they look around and they go, "Okay, I don't get it," and they leave. But we have people sometimes spend an hour or two hours exploring, doing things, taking a little time out, watching other people, then going back in. So, it's really kind of interesting, you know, people's attention spans, why they're there, what they're getting out of it. And, you know, we usually have an opportunity for feedback, you know, a book or something for people to share their thoughts. So, because we want to know. This is not, here's my art, and then we walk away. It's like, here's the art, come play with us.
0: So, this sounds like a very expensive piece to make and a very expensive piece to perform, uh, shall I say it. Two questions. First, am I right?
1: And second, uh, who commissions that then? So, good point. Technology's not cheap. So, a couple of things. This work was commissioned by the Society for New Music here in upstate New York, which has been going for 50 years strong at this point. And they are a wonderful group. They're local, but they're national and have commissioned hundreds of works from composers old and young over decades. So it was originally a commission from the Society for New Music. And then Syracuse University also helped support some of the research and development of it where I am at the Newhouse School. And then um, we also received funding from Venice International performance art week and so by hooker by Crook it came together. The other thing that's worth noting I mean Lauren really is a genius with technology and he found ways to make things work. And to f- source things and build things himself, so none of this is off the shelf in in a sense. The programming language we use, which is now being phased out, is called v v v v four vs and is an is an open source that can be customized and so he would take the code and he would tweak it and adjust it. And he's already moved on in the next iteration of this because this is an ongoing collaboration and project when we get opportunities for it. So the budget is one thing, um, but we managed with the commission money to buy the 24 speakers and to buy a computer and then Lorne being the wizard that it is, made a lot of stuff. So, you know, we were aware of the fact that this would travel and go to different places. So the amplifiers that drive the speakers are adapted from car stereo systems. They were cheap and they run on direct current uh, voltages and stuff. So he's always thinking, it's like, well, we're fine here with 110 volt, 60 cycle. But if we go to Europe, it's going to be, you know, 220 plus at 50 cycles. How are we going to deal with that? So it's sort of designing a system that's both flexible, but that leverages that, you know, artistic sense of, we'll do with what we have. Depending on the, the, the venue, you know, if it's a museum or a park or whatever, that, you know, very often we'll ask them, it's like, well, we can ship the speakers And this is what happened in Venice. We didn't ship the speakers. We shipped the system. And then on their end in Venice, they put the speakers and the amplifiers and everything together because it was just impractical. So it depends on where we're going. You know, if it's local, we've done it here locally in a couple of different museums and art parks. We've got everything. We just bundle it into the car and bring it with us. But if it's going to travel the key element that travels is the brains of the system, which is the computer system and the connects motion cameras. Those are the indispensable pieces of technology that, that really we're gonna make sure we're not leaving to chance at the other end.
0: Right, so where where was it performed so far, um, except for Venice?
1: Um, around in this area, different museums and art parks here. Uh, so. In upstate
0: New York, you mean?
1: Upstate New York, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. So l- you mentioned 10-year-olds, and then you mentioned old people, to use your words. Um, but yeah, um, I am an old
1: person, by the way. For those of you who can't see <laughs> me, I am an old person. <laughs> okay.
0: Uh, so do you have your audience in mind when you design this type? Because uh, from listening to it, I mean, it sounds fun, tremendous fun, right? But you don't necessarily immediately associate it with mainstream audience, right? Uh, so do you think about that when you create this piece, this kind of piece, and, and um, you know, what uh, what kind of audience do you have in mind when you do this work?
1: I think it's a great question. Uh, audience is everything, you know, otherwise you know, it's fine to make art in a vacuum if you do it for your own satisfaction. But art's about communication. So we do think about what the venues are. And during COVID, we did a version of Paradise at an art park. And people had to be socially distanced. So we took a very different approach to what we set up. It was was simplified that we hid loudspeakers in in the woods and had people right at the edge of the woods on, on a platform socially distanced by a couple of meters, and with the big X's marking the spot. So people could only work in pairs, but they quickly learned that they were making sound together from these loudspeakers in the woods that were up in trees, in the ground. You couldn't see them, they were concealed. So it was hard to tell what was actually coming from the forest as real sound versus the sounds from the piece. And there's this wonderful blending of summer insect sounds with birds and ice from Antarctica. And so, but we were very aware that the art park is a family venue. Uh, Yes, it's, it's artists, they do some creative cutting edge stuff, but it's also a wide open family friendly place as it were. So we saw a lot of families with little kids coming And we were anticipating that. And we just wanted to make sure, you know, just down onto a very simple level, that there was a chair for a kid to get up on so that they could, you know, be seen by the cameras and the trees. Um, So we definitely keep our audience in mind. And I think with certain venues, you you have to be prepared for everybody from a five year old to an 85 year old coming. And other things that are more sort of specific, like the Venice Performance Art uh, Week was certainly, it was open to the public and it was all over the city at different venues. But it attracted more, I mean, there were just general museum goers and curious members of the public. And certainly, you know, what's Venice without uh, throngs of tourists? We had those. But really the, the, client, the clientele for a lot of the people seeking this out were people who were interested in contemporary art. So we're sort of mindful that, yeah, that's going to be our audience principally for that. So I think, you know, as, As any artist, you want to have a clear understanding of what's the context for what you're doing. Is it a a large public space? Is it an intimate gallery? Not only the physical demands, but like you said, the demographic. Who's going to come see this? And that you sort of think that through. Um, to to make it as rich as possible for as many variables as you will have for someone in terms of an audience coming into it.
0: Do you did you think about this power of kind of uniting those those strangers you know through your work, where you come in and you think oh it's a little awkward. I I just expect to come in and quickly see something and then out the way you do it with galleries usually, and then oh you know I I discover that I can create something, but I need the more people I have with me, the more fun it is, right? So again, it shows us that as a team or as a community, we are stronger and more creative than as individuals. Did you ever think about that when making this piece?
1: Absolutely. I think you, you, you put it very succinctly in what you just described that we're interested in collective art making. We're interested in the, the relationship between Lorne and me as the quote-unquote creators of the system, I put that in parentheses because it doesn't come to life until the audience comes to make it complete. So that was from the original thought. It was always conceived as uh, an experience that would have the social dimension to it, both on a metaphorical level um, but also on a very physical, practical level. And it, it plays out differently, you know, so it's always up to how people are as individuals, if they're a little bit more shy or introverted, or as opposed to being sort of extroverted. But we just saw some very beautiful moments of complete strangers having a, a moment of recognition, looking at each other and recognizing, did I do that or did you do that? And then coming together to have just a, a brief conversation, and just a shared moment of realization that, no, we, we did this together. And it doesn't always happen. Sometimes it can be a little bit obscure, but it ha- happened more often than not. And realize, okay, we're we're on the right track with our intention, which is this a shared collective experience. Because so much of our lives are live through mediated devices that are really designed for individuals. It's not like you sit around with your friends and watch one person's cell phone, right? Very much and you have your, your you know your airpods in your ears. That's all about you and the medium that you're you know experiencing. And a student the other day said they watched Dune on their phone. The rest of the class was just horrified at the thought because they had gone to the movie theater, not only for the the, you know, picture and the sound, the the production values, but for the sense of collective sharing and experience. And I think as powerful as the individual experience of music is and consumption of media is, I think, too, that the technology is affording us greater opportunities for social connection that sometimes people miss in this. And and that's what Bourne and I were interested in, in exploring. And again, exploiting in the best sense of the word that there's a lot of power to a shared experience and a shared sense of agency. And metaphorically, when you look at climate change and, you know, all of the attendant problems around environmental degradation, there's this feeling of helplessness. And even though this is an art project in a very small corner of the world, I think we need to, to think broadly on what the sciences can bring, what political activism can bring, but what art can bring as revealing complementary truths to the situation we face. So there's a, there's a real sense for Lauren and me that this is about art as social engagement, um, not just a, a solo person putting something out to contemplate. I'm fine with that too. I mean, I don't Close the door to any form of artistic expression. But the premium for us was on that social dynamic, you know, on the visceral experience of it in the moment. But again, that sort of operative metaphor of collective sharing in an experience. You know, I, th- I think about it, I just come back to the idea of, you know, listening to music on your phone. When I was a kid, you know, back in the Cretaceous period, when a, when a band came out with a new album, It was a physical entity. It wasn't download. You had a a vinyl record. And the first kid in your circle of friends who got it, it was cause for celebration. That Beatles album when it came out, oh my gosh. You'd go over to whoever had the stereo, whoever got the album first, and you listened to it over and over and over again. Turned it over. You talked about it. But it was about a coming together and sharing the music together, not just you by yourself and then maybe texting someone or posting something on instagram with a like you were in the same room having this shared experience and i think there's still value to that and technology is not always as alienating as it seems but it's a question of how you think about it and to what ends you put your artistic practice if that's something of value to you which for me it is and for lauren absolutely is.
0: Well, it has been a joy, Douglas. Thank you very much for being with me here for all those six episodes of The Sound of Things. And uh, I hope the audience enjoyed it as much as I did. And um, I wish you the best of luck in your creative endeavors. Thank you very much for uh, working with my students uh, here in Lithuania too, And I really hope to hear more of your work and a few in the future. And in the meantime, let us say goodbye to our audience and leave them with one more excerpt from Paradise.